Today, we're going to be chatting with someone who has perhaps been running barefoot for longer than I think anyone I have ever met. But more importantly, what he knows about feet and how to make them work better and how that can affect the rest of your body and how to make the rest of your body work better too is really unparalleled. This is someone we could talk to for hours and hours and hours and hours because he and I have done that and we only barely scratched the surface of the things that we wanted to talk about. But we're going to keep it a normal kind of join the movement movement distance and maybe we'll do version two and version three anyway. This is going to be super fun for all of us. Today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting feet first, those things that at the end of your legs that are your foundation, where we break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the flat out lies you've been told about what it takes to walk or run or hike or do yoga or CrossFit or play tennis revolution or whatever it is you like to do and to do that enjoyably and efficiently and effectively. Did I say enjoyably? Wait, I know I did. It's a trick question because if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep it up. So find things you like to do. And if you didn't like to do them before, maybe getting your feet working better will help you do that. I am Stephen Sashin, co-CEO, co-founder of Zero Shoes, and we call this the Movement Movement Podcast because we, and that includes you, more about that in a second, are creating a movement about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do without getting in the way. And the part that involves you is really simple. Go over to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you need to do to join, but you can sign up to get uh, notifications about upcoming episodes. You'll see all the previous episodes. You can find all the places you can interact with us on social media. And the important thing is spread the word. That's the movement part about natural movement. Spread the word. Tell people, give us a thumbs up. Give us a, give us a good review. Hit the bell icon on YouTube. You know the drill. If you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. With that, Eric Hansen, welcome. Tell people who the hell you are and what you're doing here. Boy. I have I've just been passionate about health and wellness as far back as I can remember. The first lessons around health and wellness that I recall started at the age of three, although my paternal grandmother said that she started teaching me at about 18 months of age. And the very first thing was I had a brass knob in one hand and a jumbo Florida avocado in the other hand, and that led to me being taught by her how to feel the energetics, the vibrations of healthy tissue, unhealthy tissue, which ultimately led to me becoming a massage therapist as early as 1979 when my fellow college uh, swimmates, they realized that my hands could do for them what they hadn't experienced with anybody else. I fell so, into... By the way, I can't even tell you how out of context, how wrong that sounds. So we will not take that out of context, but just have to throw that in there for the fun of it. So, anyway. <laughs> so one of my buddies in college who was a runner and I wanted to become a runner and I had so much, so many aches and pains in my legs and the podiatrist, best podiatrist in New York City told me that I should never run because of the deformities, the defectiveness and all sorts of things that I had been having going on with my feet. But I really had the passion. If I didn't have a body of water or a bicycle, how do I get to point B? without pain. And so I began a painful running process. The aha moment took place when I was in a triathlon and the bike to run transition was quite a few miles, about 20 plus miles away from the initial start of the triathlon. And I came off the bike about 10 minutes faster than the race director anticipated anybody would come off. And my shoes were not there in the transition area. And after standing around for a couple of minutes, I decided I was not going to lose the race by standing there without my stalking shoes with my custom-made orthotics in them. I was just going to run barefoot. And I didn't end up winning the race. I took second by a matter of seconds by another gentleman who also became a uh, professional triathlete. But the beautiful thing was the next day waking up, I didn't have any of my leg pain because every single time before, and I've done a lot of triathlons by this point in 1984, I always had severe pain where I literally could not run for at least a week or more. And if I had to race a week later, which was very common, I just ran with painful legs. But this time I woke up, I didn't recall any pain in my legs whatsoever. I laced up my sock in these shoes and I went for a run. And lo and behold, all of that very familiar, frustrating pain was there. And things started to go off in my mind. But it took me until 1985 to actually begin to resolve the underlying reason why my arches were flatter than pancakes 
and why I had so much pain. And then by early, January of 86, I had decided to completely throw away my shock absorbing motion control shoes and my orthotics and just put into application what I had learned from just head to the grindstone research on the whole musculoskeletalism, but really focusing on my feet for quite a period of time. So that's what kind of kicked me off to running barefoot. I don't want to throw a Saucony under the bus because you could have put in the name of pretty much any brand and it would have been the same story. So just an FYI. So how did that, when you had that experience then and you had this at that time massage therapy practice, or maybe that evolved by then, how did John only change what you were doing, but how, what you were doing with the people that were coming to you for help? What changed for me was really basic. I stopped looking for something outside of my body to give me the results that I was looking for. And I was told that I needed something to absorb the shock. I was told that I needed something to control the motion of my feet, to literally cast my foot into a particular position. And what I realized in my research was that the whole uh, muscular system of my feet were incredibly weak. From the age of five, being a competitive swimmer, we're not exactly weight bearing on our feet. And so for all of those years as a competitive swimmer, although I did do some rock climbing in my early teens and some hiking, but it was for very small periods of time. It wasn't long enough uh, for my feet to evolve. And so in working with some other uh, professionals in the bodywork industry, we were working on each other's feet. I was also came up with a series of exercises that still have not changed to this day. And so I started to figure out ways to move my toes, to move my foot and ankle and different ways to begin to strengthen those muscles. And it took me about six months time of really putting 100% of my time and energy into it, where I found myself out in California running the, the Berkeley and Oakland, the Mount Diablo trails barefoot. And I could literally run a marathon's worth of distance in my bare feet. And they always felt great what's happened since then, I've had so many, literally, I stopped counting at about 10,000 pairs of feet with foot issues. And I just kept teaching person after person and also using hand-on skills to go ahead and start to work with the tissues to speed that process of adaptation or awakening the intelligence of the feet. One of the biggest regrets that I have about my transition from regular shoes to not is that I didn't take pictures from day one and compare them to day whenever, frankly, what note, what did you notice about how your feet changed as you started discovering this and applying the exercise? And by the way, we'll talk about those in a bit. So my feet, literally, if you looked at the inside edge of my foot and you looked at the outside edge of my foot, they were both completely 100% beautifully contoured to the ground, whatever shape the ground was, that was the state that my, my feet were. And I also didn't have the, the thought to go ahead and do before and after pictures. But my arches, and you've seen my arches of my feet, I would say that's a medium to on the higher edge of arches. And I found that most people, the inner edge of the foot just really begins to lift up. And then they start to get this beautiful spring as I, I show them where the entry point of the foot is. And it's like loading into a trampoline and it's just beautiful. It's this smooth energy. It's not like this staccato type of image of the frequency and where they get to load and they get that energy back. Yeah. So just, I want to highlight that and slightly say it in a slightly different ways. Many people don't realize that when you're using your foot correctly or when your foot is working correctly, there is, your foot comes down, it's going to land typically on the outside edge, a little, what people refer to as supinated, but most people use the word supinated or pronated as descriptions of what they think of as problems. But suffice it to say, there's this natural kind of almost wave-like motion of loading the tendons and ligaments in the foot and in a way that's totally supported by the bones and then that does create this spring-like action. It really is like being on a trampoline, except that the trampoline is your foot. So there's not an external yeah. thing. This is what's so funny. <clears throat> With all the big, giant, thick shoes and their carbon fiber plates, 
people who don't know anything about physics are saying things like, oh, those carbon fiber plates act like a spring or a trampoline. No, they don't. Not at all. For many reasons, not the least of which being that even if it was acting like a trampoline, what's making a trampoline work is your legs. You'll notice if you watch you know, professional trampoline artists or competitive trampolinists, that's an actual way of referring to themselves. They only, they're on the tramp for a relatively short amount of time. And you start seeing they're getting lower and lower with every jump because it's your legs doing the work. The trampoline is just accentuating what you can do, but it's still you. And, and in the, with the carbon fiber plates, it's not even doing that because what you need to make a trampoline work is external support, external left and right of your feet, front and back of your feet. So it actually can absorb what you're doing with your legs not your feet. And then that comes back if you you know get the timing right and do things like that. If you put a normal human being on a trampoline next to a guy who knows how to really jump on a trampoline, the guy who knows how to jump is going to be jumping three times higher. The trampoline hasn't changed. It's your legs. So now, and again, anyway, backing up a little bit, it's the one study that I don't think has been done, or at least I haven't seen it, the results of this, of the effect of foot exercise programs or barefoot training or barefoot running or anything on arch height and arch. Well, no strength has been done, but not arch height. Just people think that's just the way it is. You're born with flat feet. It's a problem. End of story. And um, my story is similar. Once I started basically running around barefoot, I developed arches in my lifelong comedy level flat feet. I get out of a hot tub. It looks like a foot with toes instead of a oval with dots. And I wish my parents were alive to see the change because they used to tease me about this all the time. And now nothing to tease. When, so let's, since you mentioned that you developed these exercises that affected you and then you started applying those to other people, can we dive in and chat about those? Yeah, I want to back up. Most of us all understand there's all these nerve endings on the bottom of the feet. And we were all born barefoot. And the design of the human body wasn't having to rely on anything to protect that foot. Right. And I believe that all of these nerve endings on the bottom of the feet are to communicate, right? To connect us with our environment and what's going on. And what happens though is that when there's a shoe that contacts all of those nerve endings on the bottom of the feet, that initial neurological design is communicating to the control tower that this foot is already in contact with something. And I think of the heel as like a kickstand. And no, I don't have a kickstand on my bicycle, right? But if I stop my motorcycle or by, and I put the kickstand down. And so I thought that we were designed to walk and run heel toe. But what I realized was that when I put my shoes aside and started to figure out how to strengthen my muscles, I noticed that I never walked heel toe unless if I was walking around a house and it's a carpeted floor, you know, I, I can get away with my heel coming down into that nice plush carpeting. If I'm outside walking in sand, I can be going heel toe. But as soon as I start to pick up the pace, I will never go heel toe. I will be that heel may make just the lightest brushing as I load into that foot. When I first begin working with people, I... If they're at my facility where I've got a treadmill or we have access to a treadmill, I'll have them actually begin going sideways on a treadmill, alternating uh, the, the leg that's um, away from the console. It's going to alternate crossing in front, and then the other foot comes alongside of it. And then the next time that downstream left foot crosses behind, we can call that step all different things. But when a person begins doing that, they could go heel toe, but they will be the most klutzy, goofy person on a treadmill. And so it's natural to be on the balls of the feet. And we'll also notice that they don't have their heel hiked way up in the air, that their foot has this really cool biomechanical relationship to the, the surface of the treadmill. And then I'll have them also begin going backwards. Once they've had that awareness, and oftentimes, these are folks that got onto the treadmill with whatever shoes they came to my facility with. And when they're running, they'll talk about whether it's foot pain, knee pain, hip pain, back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, right? All of those areas come in at some point. But what I notice is as I have them take their shoes off and they're going sideways and backwards, I go, how, what are you feeling? They do not, in almost every case, there's a few exceptions, but it's that one in a hundred cases, they no longer have that pain. So now the next step is 
I, I created a device that will attach around the ball of the foot and it can attach into different resistance of, I'll call it surgical tubing that's attached down by the floor against on a wall or underneath a piece of furniture. Depends if somebody has one of the gym in the bags. And what we begin doing is we begin doing the side to side motion of the ankle. And because they're connected out to the ball of the foot, those muscles that connect the ball of the foot to the heel are working, but the muscles that cross the ankle are working. And also the muscles that cross their knee, they're beginning to develop knee rotation, which is great for the ligament development of, and healing of the knees. The other piece, too, with the feet is that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if they've been strengthening the whole inner pathway of their ankle and leg, because nothing's going to be stabilizing them. I want them to literally be able to have their heel on a surface that's super slick so that they can't get any friction as they're beginning to do those exercises so that if they're strengthening the inside of the ankle, it's strengthening the muscles to where the thigh attaches to the floor of the pelvis. Then they'll go over to the other side and they'll be working all the muscles on the outside of the ankle, the outside of the knee, and the outside of the hip. Once we begin strengthening that, we also work with the different amounts of plantar and dorsiflexion, and we start to play in with putting toes in different positions because of how these muscles are all interrelated. They all work silently, right? They just know how to communicate with every step or every stride, anything that we're doing with our feet. So as these people begin to realize what they can't do with their toes, but then they can see what it makes sense to them. Oh, I should be right? Able to lift this toe up while those others are down or vice versa. I should be able to ideally move my foot side to side with my toes curled or my toes extended. They can begin to feel the muscles that are below the knee, that are above the ankle or even into the feet. And it really awakens them. Then the next piece is I have them straight on to this and they start to work the muscles that well, you're going to ask them. Plus one sec, before we move on to the next thing they're going to do, I want to back up a little bit just to, for anyone who didn't um, catch the gist of the design of what you're talking about with your quote, Jim in a bag. And we'll talk about that a bit more later. So imagine, um, and and please correct me if I'm getting this wrong for people, uh, even though I've, I've used this, but I want to make sure I'm describing it in a way that you like. So imagine you're sitting on the floor facing the wall, maybe three feet from the wall with your feet, three feet from the wall. So you're legs are extended. And what you have is a pick one foot doesn't matter. Let's pick your right foot. And there's a strap that goes around essentially the ball of your foot right underneath the what's the med heads, the metatarsal heads, basically what we think of as the big ball behind your first toe and your fifth toe. And then connected to that strap is some surgical tubing that's then connected to the wall. It could be connected to the wall. You could instead have it connect Instead of facing a wall, you're facing a door. There's a connection that'll go under the door. So you'll have this surgical tubing connected to whatever, whether there's a wall, piece of furniture, under a door, something to give you some resistance as you're doing these motions. And one motion, imagine that you have your, on something slippery, like you mentioned, so you can't rely on using your heel as a fulcrum, but pull your toes up, for example, or have them kind of point as to the wall and just move your toes, your whole foot, pointing in, pointing out, pointing in, pointing out as an example. So the whole idea is that you're doing these motions under the resistance of this surgical tubing. If, you, if people think of band workouts, similar idea, but with the surgical tubing instead. And, and again, one point you're making, if you're going to be you know, moving in one direction, working on the strength in one direction, at some point, you're going to switch to the other direction. So many, uh, just as an example of that, taking it slightly out of context, many people will think about strengthening their lower leg by doing calf raises. So you're pointing your toes, but most people would never think to do an exercise where you're pulling your toes to your knees, which is strengthening the exact opposite muscles, the muscles that pull your toes up instead of the ones that point them down. So you've developed a very cool system, Jim in the bag, that allows you to do many of these things. But just to get people to get that image in their head, is there anything you want to tweak on that? So there's, so I call it four-way foot ankle. And so with this tubing, it's three of those four relationships. And so if you can picture, there is that center that's straight on with your leg going towards the wall, and that's going to work the front of the ankle, the back of the knee, and the front of the hip. But then you're also sitting parallel to the wall, so that cord is coming off of your foot perpendicular to the wall. Technically, it's 100. You're sitting at a 100 degree angle to the wall, but that's neither here nor there, right? And so you're strengthening all of that 
And again, um, traditionally in, in personal training, we've oftentimes been, I, I was taught to help people to isolate a particular joint or muscle group. And one of the things that I found with developing the feet is that I don't want to isolate a particular joint or muscle group for any part of the body. And so that's what's really key with this exercise. And again, yeah, I'm not up in my gym area, but a surface that your heel could be on, like a vitamin cap or some cap where it's almost like it's so slick, there'd be zero friction so that if you relax the muscles, either on the inside or the outside of your leg, based on which relationship, your leg would go off to the wall. And I'll oftentimes, so if this leg has the cord coming off, I'll oftentimes have people brace that leg and just move their ankle and they're like, oh my goodness, it doesn't feel right because it dissociates from the linkage. And this is something that's really important when people are going from wh where they're at, foot and health, uh, foot and ankle health or disease, getting them connected all the way through their leg is so important. We could never translate only doing an ankle exercise with becoming a better walker or runner or hiker. Uh, it's, it's connected all the way up through. And our legs literally connect all the way up to our, you know, the chest plate here, right? Our legs come up that high in our body. And so this exercise develops every single muscle from the end of the toes all the way up to literally it's the 12th thoracic vertebrae for those that know the, the anatomy of the body. You mentioned some, Stephen, everybody, like almost anybody that goes to a gym at some point has done some heel lifts, their calf exercises. When we look at the structure of the body, I think of the calf muscles as like the propulsion system with no steering mechanism. And so the calf muscles come down to the heel, that's for propulsion. But these other eight primary muscles, so there's a lot more than eight, right? There's over 100 muscles that are involved with the foot and ankle. But there's eight of them that have to do with our finesse, our steering, our control of our feet that we are developing with those initial three positions with the corded exercise. But now the next piece is instead of going on a traditional like seated calf raise or maybe it's a standing calf raise exercise where I, I've got some resistance to my shoulders and to my heels going up and down. That's stabilizing me and that's guiding me. And I want to literally, I want to have that person step away from that. And for those of you listening to this, if, if you want to hit pause in a moment and then come back to this, if you're not watching this live right now, have the, have your, the ball of your foot on say a book. So and we're, we're going to describe this so people can listen and get it in their head. So keep going, but think of it from adding a description for what you're showing. And, and I'll, I'll chime in to, to do that as well for people who are only listening. So continue if you would. I have people start on flat floor, put your feet together, close your eyes, and then lift one foot up off of the ground while your eyes are closed and just become the observer. What do you feel on that foot and ankle, that leg that you're standing on? What do you notice? And people are amazed at how much their muscles are working in there. And then they switch to the other foot, and sometimes they feel like, wait a minute, I wasn't so bad. I was able to get away with balancing on my one, but I go to the other one, yeah. like my arms yeah. are flailing all over the place. And there's this natural progression and patience. It can take some weeks to get this proprioception, this kinesthetics, this balance, whatever you want to call it, to get all these neurons and muscles to begin strengthening and to communicate with each other so that you can get into this like Zen state. If I were standing on one leg right now with my eyes closed, the Zen state is I just look like I'm just totally quiet. The next step would be to have a, a surface that's maybe elevated inch and a quarter-ish, depending on the size of your foot, and put the ball of your foot on there. And again, start out with your heel can be resting on the ground that's well within active range of motion. Close your eyes. Feel what it's like now with the ball of your foot higher than your heel, but then start to lift your heel up off the floor. And people are all over the place. And as I say to people, and as I said usually, the definition of running is you're not on more than the ball of one foot at a time. 
And so this is what I call a constitutional exercise. For everybody listening to this, if you have only one takeaway, stand on one foot on the ball of your foot with your heel slightly off the ground and close your eyes and develop that until you become a master. And I've shared with Stephen this story about marathon runner who had an injury. And when they mastered that, it took them 11 weeks to master that. They hadn't been running because of the nature of their injuries. And they had an agreement with me that until they mastered six particular exercises, that they wouldn't run. And they were 10 minutes faster than their all-time best in a marathon. Wait, wait. I'm going to break the cause and effect of that down because we it, it went fast. Professional marathon runner came into you injured. You gave them a number of these exercises and, and during that time said, no running until you've mastered these. And one, the key one, or one of the key ones, is what you just described, being just elevated on your toes, eyes closed, totally stable. Until you can do that, you can't run. Well, part of the story you left out is that she called you like the night before the Olympic trials and mm-hmm. went, got it. And you said, okay, so you can run the next day. And that next day set a 10 minute PR, which is just unheard of. So think of running as aerobic, right? Aerobic function, right? There's a reason that you like to stop at a hundred meters and they're just about thinking. And so what I like to get across to people is that this body, your body is this vehicle. And there's so many things that are out of synchronicity. And so if it was a race vehicle, we would have it in the shop and we'd have people working on that vehicle. It wouldn't be out there on the track constantly trying to get better and better on on that running the trail or running the track. No, it's get into these systems. And so with developing the feet in this, it challenges the triathletes and the runners that come to me initially. And that's why with this person that was going to their Olympic trials, I literally had to have her handwrite, and we didn't handwrite it, but we were really clear, eye to eye. She agreed that until she mastered these six exercises, these six movements, and that was the last one for her. The other five really didn't have to do with the feet. It had to do with what her injury was that she came to me. But you can imagine after those two or three, like at two weeks time of not running, he was getting panicked, right? She literally was like emotionally stressed. You got to get running. And I said, but we got this agreement. Look, you got two of those six already. Stick with the plan. Stick with the plan. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Unfortunately, there are other people in my clinic going, trust him, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I came in here in a, a cane or a walker. Trust him. Just follow the protocol. And she was willing. So that was the exercise that literally that night before. And we had agreed many weeks. We had agreed basically at 11 weeks out that even if she couldn't master these six movements that I suggested for her vehicle, she was going to race in the uh, Olympic trials. And so we had agreed on that no matter what. But she literally, instead of running and putting two, three hours a day of that type of training, she was putting in those two or three hours into tuning up her vehicle and we worked on a lot of other systems that were completely non-related to, quote, the feet or her particular area of injury. Even more to highlight an aspect of this is um, it's not just that her feet and or ankles got stronger from doing this. It's more than that. So talk about that for a bit, please. There were a lot of pieces. One of the things that we hadn't mentioned is that she is an identical twin. And her identical twin had run faster than her bare minimum, like three minutes faster every single marathon. So there was a part of this training also that is, and I use an acronym, MEES, is the acronym. I call it the MEES method. And part of that is moving, eating, sleeping, and the apostrophe is taking ownership of how we move, eat, and our sleep. But then there's also the mental, the emotional, the psychological, and the spiritual part. And so also part of her training brought her into a level of consciousness that is just not talked out by it's not part of becoming a personal trainer it could be part of some types of massage style but basically every muscle in the body has to do with a particular one of the 12 
primary organ systems. And the ankle exercises, the ankle muscles in general, I'm oversimplifying, it has to do with our adrenals, our fight or flight. And if we have anxiety, if we have emotional stressors, we can do all the best exercises in the world. We can be eating all the best from nature's essential food groups I developed. But if we're not getting into that mental, the emotional, the psychological and the spiritual aspects, and so she got to work on those additional parts and pieces. And so as she was doing any of her movements or anything else she was doing at my wellness center, she had that whole MEES method acronym working through her. And I, I used an example for her way back when. There were three um, groups of basketball teams, and one was to strictly focus on making their shots. The other group practiced their shots and also visualized the shots. And the third group only practiced taking the shot. They weren't encouraged at all to do the visualization. The bottom line that's really cool is the group that only visualized was almost as good as the group that visualized and practiced. And so much of her training had to do with fever therapy so that her body developed that methodology, that system for her to be going at a higher rate of speed and to be able to dissipate, to maintain her core temperature at 99.1. We did actually in the clinic, we would do fever stuff to bring her core temperature to 99.1. This is something that's not talked about in athletics, but that's like the ideal operating temperature. If we take the same person and we compare them, say, running on a treadmill at 98 degrees, which is so common, actually people are 97 and 96 degrees, you have them on that treadmill, but then we start to look at the data and the information, 99.1 is almost always the ideal operating point for somebody that's fat or somebody that's skinny or those of us that are somewhere in between. So there's a lot of pieces. I, well, I could go on for 10 days of a street to my run. First of all, thanks. But the irony, of course, is I was just going for something simpler, which was that instead of just developing strength, there was the neurological proprioceptive component to this that was being shifted. Because like you're saying, when you stand on one foot, eyes closed, whether your heels lifted or not, the first thing you're going to feel is that instability. And it's less about strength explicitly. It's less about muscle things than nervous things. It's less, it's more that feedback loop and how that hasn't just, it just hasn't been used. It hasn't been turned on. And, but where you went, super fun. I will say I'm going to, and one of the things about the, the basketball visualization thing, just as an FYI, and this will end our friendship, the, <laughs> I've looked for that study for 20 years and never found it. And more, I said, let's just do the math on this. If you could, because the way it was actually, the first time I heard it was someone said, basketball players who just visualized taking free throws got 20% better after eight weeks of visualization. Mm -hmm. And I said, if that's all it takes, given how important free throws are in a basketball game, Two things. One, everybody would be doing it and they'd all be shooting at above 90%. And two, everyone would then do it again and then they'd get to 98%. So that hasn't happened yet. It's just, this is completely tangential. But I remember hearing for the umpteenth time a story that goes like this. This is in the kind of new age manifestation world where there was a study of the graduates of the 1953 Yale class where they tracked them 20 years later and there was 3% of the people who were more successful than the other 97, 97% combined. And the only difference was they had written down their goals. Right. Now, I've heard this thing. It was Yale. It was Princeton. It was Harvard. It was wherever. It was 1953, 1956, 1975. And then one day I just did the math. And I just did a spreadsheet about what the average income of various people would be. And realized that, A, if you just, if in any given Ivy League class, one of the people was the son of the sultan of somewhere. He had more money than everyone combined, no matter what, from day one. But then, just for the, the really fun part of the story, I it just hit me like, this just feels like urban mythology because you can't pin it down. So I got online and I, I put out a bet or a wager or something, an offer. I said, I'll pay $1,000 to anyone who can show me the study. And I also said, I'll even give you $1,000 if you can prove it didn't happen, even though it's hard to prove the non-existence of something. Five minutes later, the guy who started Snopes.com 
sent me a, an email pointing me to an article, I think it was in Fast Company, where someone had spent like a year trying to track down this study and could never do it. It always was a dead end, or I heard it from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone and concluded that it never happened. And I said to the guy from Snopes, I got to tell you, you did that so quickly. I got to be honest, I feel a little anxious about giving you $1,000. He said, I got to be honest, I didn't think you'd ever give me anything. I said, oh, cool. Then here's 500 bucks. <laughs> and so some of these things, I'm not dismissing the value, and I'm going to re use a word differently, the value of visualization. I'm not going to dismiss the value of mental rehearsal. As an all former All-American gymnast, I did that all the time. I'm going through my routines in my head all the time. And people will sometimes say, your body can't tell the difference. It can totally fucking tell the difference. Doing an iron cross for real is different than imagining doing the iron cross. You're, yes, you might be sending little signals to your body that kind of activate something. It ain't the same. But the rehearsal thing is critical. In fact, I would always rehearse having things go wrong and what I was going to do to fix it. So not just making it perfect, what's going to happen, every little possible thing. And But I will add one part you'll get a kick out of. In my senior year of high school, when I was doing this, I would imagine it in my mind all the way through to the score. And for that season, every competition I was in, my score was one-tenth of a point higher than what I had imagined. Exactly one-tenth of a point every time. And at some point, I didn't try to second-guess it. I just went, well, that's cool. But I don't have a story about that or an explanation for that, nor do I particularly care. But but anyway, I just wanted to throw that in for the, I don't know why. Because frankly, yeah. you know, I can't help myself when someone says, well, all you have to do is visualize because your body doesn't know the difference. Or when they talk about left brain, right brain, and I can show them the article from the guys who came up with the concept of left brain versus right brain who say, oh my God, that was the biggest mistake we ever made because uh, yes, there are parts of your brain on the left and right that are primarily responsible for, but every one of these functions is actually your whole brain doing things where when people say we only use 10% of their brains. So I, sometimes I just can't help myself. And that was one of those times. Yeah. Um, no, and that's, that's actually beautiful because as I've read through a lot of white papers and that over the, over the many decades, um, Sometimes we can draw conclusions to things that's really not what it is. One thing with athletes in training is that that visualization is just one part of the formulation. Activity specific, there's nothing that will ever replace that activity specific. And so when we combine those two together, it's massive. When I work with people also on their biochemistry and when I have folks do all different types of labs, there's generally reference ranges. And what we do is we don't look, did they hit somewhere on the target? That's a reference range. What are the bullseyes? And as I work with folks, some people, it's just, they have other factors that maybe nourishment doesn't seem to be like their tipping point to make or break them. But we know that when we start to work with it, that's one less thing that's going to hold them back from their peak potential. I, I have a fondness, obviously, for when people say something for looking for a counterfactual. It looks as if there's a, another, an opposite situation that might be as, as valid. And I love when people talk about the importance of sleep. And I say to every highly competitive athlete that I know, I go, how do you sleep the night before an event? They go, oh, are you kidding? I can't sleep at all. So not, going. Yeah, not quite what people think. Or the, one mutual friend of ours who talked about uh, how when she was winning all of her races, you know, how she got into the zone and she spent like an hour at a dinner with a bunch of people talking about getting in the zone. And then I said to her after everyone was like ooing and eyeing about her zone stories, I said, did you ever win a race when you didn't feel like you were in the zone at all? In fact, you felt sick and didn't even want to show up. She goes, oh yeah, that happened a bunch of times. Ever felt like you were in the zone and it just could barely make it out of the blocks? Yeah, that happened a bunch of times too. There went that zone crap. Here's the bottom line. With what you can add other factors if you want, but the fundamental thing is for whatever reason, you were the fastest person in the world for a good 10 year stretch. And one thing that did to your competitors is scared the crap out of them. You had the psychological advantage of well, as well as that they knew the odds were high you were going to crush them. Now, the other stuff may have something, but I just, I, for whatever reason, I just like getting to the simplest thing. And I had, I had the sleep story as well. I never sleep before a race. And I had that once at a, a diving meet when I was a kid, I woke up and I looked at my mom's watch, which was on the dresser and, and it said nine o'clock and I was supposed to meet people at eight 30 to go to this meet. And I run out of my room and I'm looking around and I can't find anybody. And uh, I, it looked like everyone had left already. And I was very confused. And then I realized I looked at my mom's watch upside down. It was three 30. <laughs> and, uh, 
And then I just, whatever, yeah. whatever the upside down of 3.30 would be, you can do yeah. that. Um, and, and then went back, lied around until 8.30, then found everyone and you know, went to the meeting and aced it. it. It's an entertaining thing. When I was 12, I, I would get all sorts of levels of anxiety, right? I get those nerves and stuff. And this coach that I had at 8.12, her name is Penny. And Penny said, hey, Eric, don't worry about that. That's actually your body is getting ready for you to be at peak so that when that gun goes off, man, you're exploding. And so just be excited. Welcome all of that adrenaline and all of that like laser focus and thinking about your turns and your this, that. And wow, just that shift in perspective was massive. I'm going to fast forward. So two summers ago, um, I was up in the mountains. I was going to do um, the highest altitude 10K open water, cold open water swim. And uh, I decided to bring my sweetheart with us and we're going to camp out the night before. And I just, I'm there with her. I'm focused on her, right? And we're normally the night before a, a big event, I'm like in my box, right? Yeah. I'm just like, nothing else exists. It's just me, my mind, my physical body. And in the morning we get up and there's plenty of time before the start of the swim. We go for this walk around the lake. Bottom line is like, I have done no preparation in my mind. And you know, like they, because of COVID, they're having to start, I don't know, it's 30 seconds apart or whatever. No mental preparation. I go out into this low 60 degree water. I don't know how many meters out it was, maybe less than a quarter mile. I literally had to get my mind to calm down because I was so anaerobic that I literally didn't even feel like I could even figure a way to float. I had to just stop and go on my back and just let the metabolites of being anaerobic and that warmed up to kick in. And I turned over, I swam maybe another 30, 40 strokes. And I said, nope, I'm going to lay on my back here. I'm going to just gently move until I feel like I am ready. And so that just proved to me the power that I need to have some window of time. I call it like the bumblebee effect where supposedly a bumblebee, and I don't know if there's white papers on this, that it's got to get its core temperature up before a bumblebee can actually fly. And so there I was out there in that low six degree water trying to get my metabolism of my body going. And then I was fine. But I literally had a split second moment, a little more than that, that I was going to drown. And here I am like this proficient swimmer and I'm going to freaking drown. So mind and mental preparation and physical preparation. Does, I mean, you know, yeah, the simplest thing I can say is everybody wants to make it simple. Everybody wants to think there's a way to do it that works for every situation. People talk about having rituals that they use for when they start because the ritual is helpful. And then same thing. I've said, did you ever show up late for a race and just had to run, jump in the blocks and go? And they went, yeah, I go, how'd you do? Oh, I won. Again, <laughs> I, I don't know why I like to pull the rug out from underneath people's religious beliefs, but I do. Um, but I think I do it because for me at least, and I imagine for them as well, it adds some freedom so you don't have to be so rigid about it. So you can, what you're describing, listen to what's going on in that moment to the extent that you can, if you have the time and the wherewithal to do it. And if you don't, you know, you just go and you do your best. And ironically, often, you know, that's all it takes. I had a weird flashback. I was in an, acting in a play when I was in college and we brought in like a professional equity actor. This guy was in his 70s. He'd been doing this for 60 years. And we just were chatting before our entrance and we didn't do any of our warm-ups. We didn't do anything weird because we just got into this conversation. And suddenly we realized it sounds weird on stage and we had missed our cue and they had been ad-libbing for a minute. And he just looks at me, laughs and goes, okay, here we go. <laughs> we just went out and had the best performance of either of our lives because we had no choice but to just relax and go with the flow and see where it went. And we were just really there. We weren't anticipating in advance. We weren't like running our lines. It was like, it's already in there. We already know what to do. Let's just let it do its thing. It was a blast. That relaxation piece also was many of since people are probably they hike, they walk or whatever. They've seen all sorts of athletic events, how the best in any sport always makes it look so much easier than the second yeah. best. Yeah. Right. And there is, I would use that word. They just appear so incredibly relaxed. And you know, what's funny, you know, for, sorry. what's funny Tyson Gay, 
who was the fastest 100-meter man in the world before uh, uh, Usain Bolt beat him. It was the exact opposite. Um, he just looked like his, his head was about to explode and pop off of his body. The guy looked like every move was just straining against gravity in some way, um, certain angles. So more often than not, totally true. Again, I love these little exceptions. Take a look at, take a look at that guy. And by the way, Tyson Gay, I think it's like the saddest thing in the world. This guy, fastest man in the world for a good year and a half, and then is ready to officially win the world championship. And then Usain Bolt shows up. It's like, what the hell? All that prep, all that everything out of his control. It's, and I was at that race, just so happened in Munich, and or sorry, in Berlin. And just for the fun of saying it, Usain Bolt was so far ahead of Tyson Gay, who was so far ahead of Asafa Powell, I'm at the 70 meter mark, about five rows off the track. Uh, and I thought, this must be a false start. There's no way that these guys can be so spread out. And besides, Usain Bolt was at the 70 meter mark, was running at 28, 29 miles an hour. And when someone runs by you at a speed where they would get a ticket in my neighborhood, your brain <laughs> just goes, what? <laughs> it, it literally doesn't seem real. So anyway, yeah. total yeah. tangent. Back to you for the win. I, I want to ask you a question because you've been, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that you have taken your work both personally and professionally, if I can say it that way, as a ongoing exploration and experiment. And what you have discovered and done with people is unlike things almost anyone's ever seen. It's a shame that more people haven't. But I'm curious, what are some of the things that you, one of the questions I like to ask you know, people who went to medical school, for example, I'll say, how much of what you're doing every day relates to what you learn in medical school? What percentage? And if anyone ever says anything over 20%, I know they're lying. So what are some of the things that you've discovered in the the many years you've been doing this that kind of either most surprised you or most validated something you were thinking, or that's been like the most, let me, yeah, let me just leave it at those two possible options. Boy, there's so many parts and pieces. When you mentioned this, it's like, what am I doing today that I had learned in, in schooling, right, or formal schooling? And I, I really don't have that background, right? When you have a witch raising you, right? And she was a nurse, right? She did have some of her own formal training in that. But when we're talking about energetics and stuff like that, that just, it's not really in very, more and more today. Yeah. So almost none of what I do in my practice is anything that came from academia. It came through empirical evidence. And then in that even, what's up, is there something that you're doing now that you found through working either on and with yourself or with other people where it was one of those holy crap moments where either things kind of consolidated or just moved to a whole new level because of something that just, you know, showed up in that moment that's now a big part of what you're doing? There's quite a few, there's a lot of those moments. And I used to, I had a, a wellness center in Boulder, Colorado, and there are the leading people in all of the different fields and stuff. And there were still people who still had health issues going on and they had been there to see the best and they would be like, Hey, go see Eric. And one of the huge gifts that came about from having decade after decade, constantly new people coming in, um, I would ask them, what have you done? What did you like? What didn't you like? And I get them to start to share their experience. And then over time, it started to become really clear that there was this triad. And so I always look for the three or more things that are conspiring to give the person their particular medical condition. If there's something that has really surfaced that is true in every single case, and, and this blows people away, right? Where really the mental, the emotional components. And so we can have two people, one's eating great and one's eating junk, right? The person eating junk doesn't have a particular disease. This other person has this particular disease. Or one can be skinny, one can be fat. There's so many different variables. And a couple of things that I've instilled is to make sure that the person has no... Specific with movement, that their movements are three-dimensional versus isolated. Anytime that um, a person is trying to have tension in a particular muscle, 
They are the farthest they could possibly, they're at the other end of the spectrum. And so I want people to learn how to move and allow the tonal qualities of the body to just take care of themselves. When it comes to eating, I find that people are missing two or more of what's been now known as the essential food groups. And they're missing really key raw materials that their body is, I don't have more glass around, but I got duct tape. I can put duct tape on that cracked window or that whatever it is. Um, And there tends to be something nutritionally deficient is another part of this triad of of the foods. And in in this day and age, what was never an essential food group until recent history, seaweed. So many farming practices, the soil is very deplete. And when they use science called gas and liquid chromatography, you get, uh, I'll just use spinach as an example. In 1956, the U.S. government, and you can find these online, the U.S. government did analysis of a certain number of vegetables, spinach being one of them. And in one cup of spinach, there was a certain amount of iron. By 1990s of these dozen or so components that they were checking in spinach, now you require 75 cups of spinach to get the same amount of iron as that one cup. But then they also noticed other compounds that used to be found in spinach are no longer there. And so we need to get into what's known as regenerative farming practices. We need to allow the microorganisms of the soil and the mycelium. There's a whole science behind this. And so seaweed now, because the oceans probably aren't going to be deplete anytime soon with these particular nutrients. And so for when it comes to the body's needs for these things, seaweed now is an essential food group. So that's going to be one example. Another example would be mushrooms. Um, Mushrooms are really key in so many facets of their complexity of their proteins, um, their ability for immune modulation. There's so many different dynamics. So mushrooms are also an essential food group. And I'll just throw in a third one, live active cultures. So foods through thousands and thousands of years, cultured foods, people used to drink from the water in the stream and the ponds and the creeks. Now we drink municipalized water that is dead, right? Those chemical compounds in there. And so adding in, making sure that you have live active cultures, the dilemma is if somebody puts something on the shelf and it's alive, think produce, so you cut off that from the plant or whatever, and you have it on the shelf, it's only got so much shelf life. The same thing is true with these active cultures is that if it doesn't sell in a fairly small window of time, the profit and loss is going out of balance. And so many things that used to be live cultures are now actually killed Mm. to then have shelf life. So those would be three examples of these kind of 18 key areas that I talk to people and very deficient. A, thank you. And B, just to get you back on where you were talking about the triad of things and nutrition was the second. So I took this little tour and you were about to go on to the third. Yeah. So with each person coming in, I'm really looking at what are the three things, the X, Y, and Z axis where it's like here, it's landing, it's got this label or it's got this area of body of pain. And I've yet to find anybody that it was just one thing that caused their particular condition. And it's rarely two, it's generally three or more. And when I get people coming in, whether it's foot issues or back issues or neck or digestive issues, or they've got like a cancer diagnosis, um, they've typically got four or five, six different things that are disharmonious that I really help them to bring back into alignment. I like, I like that you're looking at the body as not just a mechanical thing. And I like that the way you're looking at the mechanical thing is a, a very different flavor than most of I me. Mean, the whole idea of getting things, I, I hate to use the word balance, but I will, so that as you were saying before, things move smoothly rather than with tension and, and effort and force. This is a thing that is, it's interesting. And in fact, I, again, a personal thing, I remember a sprinter that I worked with who was a very successful collegiate sprinter uh, said to me one day, don't you love it when it's just going really right and it feels like you're just barely touching the ground, it's flying? And I went, what? Because his form is just utterly perfect. And there was a hitch in my giddy up that I think I recently fixed. Someone gave me a cue that when I used that little cue about how to run, I instantly felt a change in my gait. 
but I haven't had time. It's been below zero on the weekends here. So I haven't had time to go out and videotape it and see what it feels like at full speed. But even in just my kind of casual thing, it just, everything feels so much more relaxed. Everything's just in the right place. I'm not having to fight myself. And I'm waiting to see if A, it translates to what I'm actually seeing instead of what I'm just feeling. And then B, I want to see what that does to speed. And happily, um, it is now, as we're recording this, two weeks away from the end of the year. And that means the indoor track season is coming up. So I'll be able to put this to the test in about three or four weeks. Um, So two things on movement is, and since I, I still compete in swimming, I still am constantly consciously aware of all the different aspects of my stroke, right? My kick, my hole. I'm still always in awareness of that. Coming back though, um, if most of us have seen a door that can swing in two directions, and I say the door never thinks about where it's going to come to rest. That door ideally is in that closed position when it's at rest. But if it's not, we want to work with whatever its hinge mechanism is. And so in the human body, a lot of people don't realize how out of balance they are. And so I had a person come in and I'm working on them and their right side of the low back, the tonal quality of the muscles are radically different. And I go, do you find that you're repetitively turning to your right on a regular basis? And rarely ever turning to them, she goes, absolutely. And so the thing is, I'm on a stool. And so my legs are going off back that way as I'm here. So that was turning left, but this is turning right. And a lot of people don't realize how their habituated movements. And that's where this three-dimensional stuff, when somebody comes in and they begin going through these three-dimensional movements, the painful side sometimes is the side that's actually working and it's the non-painful side that's not working. And that explains various things. And sometimes the painful side isn't working. So we can't really, just because of how the pain is, we just need to get them to explore. The other piece that was really phenomenal. So there's something called the journey. And generally in the journey, it's a verbal guidance, right? Getting a person to drop in. Heal cellu- um, to heal cellular issues in their tissues. And then there is an ev- evolution of that work where it's called touch of the divine, where now once you've got that person into that cellular memory area and we're doing body work on them based on the Enneagram, it gets convoluted. Um, but if a person has something called a no-go zone, right, they got this black box, no matter what I do body work wise, that's, it's not going to get into there to get clear. So then I developed, this was back in, I think it was like 2000, 2010, 2011. I had an opportunity to work with the, a bunch of journey practitioners who are, have completed all the training, they're accredited, and some of them wanted to learn this three-dimensional movement. And so we've got a small group, six of them and me, and Inevitably, almost every movement session, somebody would just like, all of a sudden there was like this, an explosion of a, an emotional memory that would come up. And the simple thing is that they would see me demonstrate a movement like knee to forehead or fingers, it doesn't matter what the movement was. They saw me do it and they're like, oh, that's easy. I can do that. And then everybody's beginning to do that movement and they can't do that movement. They just can't do it. But intellectually, they know that their body is designed to do this easily, naturally, and effortlessly, and they can't. And that black box now, it's almost like somebody just detonated it. The beautiful thing that I loved was that the other six of the seven of us, all of us are trained in this work. And when the person would share what the cellular memory was, usually one or two folks would then feel called to literally process and clear it through. And the masterfulness of it is like two to five minutes later or something, it's usually done never more than eight or 10 minutes. Now we ask that person to do this three-dimensional move and it's like they never had an issue with doing it ever before. It's just like they have the full range of motion spontaneously almost. I love, and I'm going to, just for the people who may have a different relationship to some of the things you described, I'm just going to do the simple version of that where it's, because I've seen similar things 
where without the same framework for describing it or working with it, but I've seen things where someone like a simple thing that I do. I say this, I've said this on the podcast a bunch of times. One day I just was aware I put on my pants left leg first. So then I decided to do right first. And I've seen people when I say things like that, or I cross my arms and normally my left arm is over my right arm. So I learned to do it the other way around. Now I can't remember which way is which, but I'll ask people to try and just switch and simple movements. And they're like, their brain is just completely fried by it. And to that point, you can ask a simple question about even something as simple as does this feeling feel familiar um, that you can't do this thing? And it turns into this surprisingly big emotional whatever. And once they shake that off, then suddenly they can do this thing that they couldn't do a second ago. Nothing changed in their body. Something changed in a part of their brain that it had nothing to do with that movement. It's fascinating. Google neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, it's fascinating. And bringing us back to, to these bipeds and most folks, I don't know, uh, we all got these two legs, right? That Not we can jump around like bunnies and stuff. But if I use the example of violinists and had an opportunity to work with just some incredible violinists where their heads, they're always like this and they've got this neck pain and they're having to quit the career because they're getting this, like all sorts of diseases, right? Numbness and this right. long listing. All I ask them to do is to go ahead and take that violin from that shoulder, put it over the other shoulder, hold the bow with the other hand instead of that hand. And have your camera on, videotape it, and like you're like, like they're like, it's like they can't, and but it makes sense that they're designed right. There's nothing unique about the cervical spine or the arms in this position, but they can't do it that other way. And so when people come to me with whether it's foot, knee, hip, back, neck, shoulders, whatever. Um, we look for these habituated patterns through their lifestyle and it, it they clear quite quickly. And I'm just going to throw out there, I'm not an advocate. It takes three weeks to create a, a behavioral pattern change where it's automatic, natural, and effortless. There are some people it can take months yeah. and it's a matter of being patient and having objective markers to know objectively how do I know that I am improving and getting better? Because that's where the inspiration comes. Yeah. And so oftentimes when somebody, when people aren't getting the results they want, it's like they quit before the miracle happened. And so that's another piece, whether it's somebody working with their feet or any part of the body, for them to know objectively and also have their subjective inventory. And I, I jokingly say, you came to me with, one or two problems, and now you're telling me how great you're doing, and now your list has got 20 things on it. Because so oftentimes, yeah. as they have that awareness, I never thought about that. That was from an accident I had then, or that was when I did this and that then, and this is just how it's been. And you've met my sweetheart, who major amputation, basically, and that tissue in that area had no, couldn't feel it. This is like, and it grossed me out, because, oh, God, it's, there's no feeling. But this is over two and a half centuries later, they're close to two and a half centuries later of no neurological feeling in there. And she has beautiful feelings. I can't get away with touching her leg under the table. She's got her prosthetic. She knows instantly. Right? She's not seeing her. She can feel it. Yeah. That's not considered possible. And so with gait, with the feet, with any part of the body, how do we, again, these objective measurements that give us inspiration and using previous successes in our life to help us until we can get those positive objective measures, life becomes so incredible. And I've, I'll just share this too, and it's found on my website, but there've been a number of people who have started out with me running. And after a couple of years of them integrating this program, they're just like, Man, if I can just go run barefoot, I'm, I'll carry my shoes in case, like the field out back here where I don't go home, right? And so if I'm running along and I start to get these pokey things, I'll go ahead and put on my zero sandals and continue the run that way. But once you come alive in your body, your whole emotional intelligence and spectrum of emotions, you're not stuck in those three to 12, maybe different emotions. You literally, your body, you get excited. 
for life at every age, no exceptions. I can't think of a more perfect way to wrap this up than that. And and I know it's it may sound crazy because that that last little bit seems so big, but if you really go back to even the beginning of the of our conversation, everything we're talking about is was leading to this because it's all about. I don't need to dive into it, but all I can say is there's much more to it. Pardon me one sec. Anyway, Eric, do me a huge favor for people who want to find out more about what you've been doing and experience more importantly what you've been doing and what could be useful for them. How can they find you? Thank goodness to uh, quote COVID, right? I work with people virtually around the world instead of having to fly everywhere, but I do still love to fly places. You can go to enliveenergy.com and read through some things. And there's a link on there that you can schedule a complimentary 15 minute uh, session with me. So that's enliveenergy.com. The other thing, if you would like to learn like a small series of exercises that you can do for your foot and ankle or maybe your knee or your hip, right? Be specific. Email me. Please don't email me at my business. I use that for current existing clients, but I use ericthehealer at gmail.com, E-R-I-K. Make sure you spell my first name right. Ericthehealer at gmail.com and just send an email and say, Please send me some of the exercises for my foot and ankle, or if you got a neck thing or a shoulder thing or a hand thing, or you've got a particular diagnosis of a disease or whatever it is, right? It could be even skin stuff. I will then send you complimentary from a place of gratitude for Stephen having me on here. I will reply to 100% of you who send me an email. You don't get a reply back. Check. Did you put Eric with a C or K for kindness? Brilliant. That is um, a wonderfully gracious offer. And I really look forward to hearing what people describe when they take you up on it. First of all, thank you again. As always, a pleasure. We have much more to do and we'll get to that at another time. We may do V2 of this as well with other pieces of the puzzle. But for everybody else, until then, just a reminder, head over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com where again, you'll find previous episodes, all the ways you can engage with us on social media, other places to find the podcast if you don't like the place you've already found it. And if you have any questions for me, any suggestions, any recommendations of people you think that should be uh, on the podcast, Ideally, if you can find someone who's willing to talk to me who thinks I have cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, I'm happy to do that. I would love to talk to someone who thinks I'm completely full of it. That would be a blast. Drop me an email, move, M-O-V-E at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, between now and whenever we bump into each, again, bump into each other again virtually, go out, have fun, and live life feet first.